Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Iron List. This is a this is a podcast in which we do lists. <laughs> uh, my name is William Bibiani. I am a critic, and everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold, and I too am a critic. And people just call me, "Hey, get out of my way." Hey, got out of my way, and I are, <laughs> are uh, in a process every month. Every month we do an episode of The Iron List. This is a podcast in which he and I each put together our own top ten list of the best something or other movies ever made. And the topic is chosen by our patrons every single month over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. And this month, our patrons are feeling a little bit silly. Because this is an odd topic. This is a weird topic. We threw this one in as a joke, and y'all went for it. So cool. Uh, Yeah, we are doing the best movies with ridiculously long titles. Now, what constitutes a ridiculously long title? That's a really good question because there are some movies that have longer titles than others, but there are also some movies whose titles are long enough that we go, "Eh, you're just being weird for the sake of being weird. (laughs) You really need to call yourself, does it really need to be called Birdman or the unexpected virtue of ignorance? Like, was that really necessary? Yeah, absolutely it well, was, because the screenwriter chose it that way. Of course, of course yeah. the people chose it that way, and of course it's fun. And I actually love movies hmm. with really long titles. I, I mean, picking a title is more art than science, and I think a lot of marketing departments often have a lot of say in what a movie is called. Which uh, is a pity, because uh, as we recently discussed on uh, episode zero, our hmm. Star Wars podcast... There is a movie called John Carter. Yeah. What's what's John Carter about? A guy named John Carter. What does he do? Works John in a Carter bank, thinks, I guess. Yeah, that doesn't tell you anything about the movie. It doesn't tell you it's about a, a, a Confederate soldier who finds a magical cave that teleports him into the middle of a... Th- a gigantic battle on the planet Mars. Yeah, John Carter where, was that they chose the name aliens are fighting each other. John yeah. Carter was the third title they chose for that movie. The first title was the original title of the book, A Princess of Mars. Hmm. Great title, evocative, fascinating. Second title, John Carter of Mars. Okay, a little less evocative, but it tells you that it's on Mars and it's a fantasy sci-fi story. Then they just turned that shit to John Carter, didn't they? That's just not interesting. So, uh, so, uh, and titles have been generally very uncreative because of what you said about marketing. Yeah, people think that you just need something simple, punchy. Okay. Uh, and there are great titles and there are bad titles of all different uh, lengths. But uh, for whatever reason, movies with ridiculously long titles just sort of stand out. I think it's because they have ridiculously long titles. I don't really know where I'm going with this. The thing is, there's really no connective tissue between a lot of these movies other than the filmmakers were fanciful enough or the marketing department was on board enough. Permissive enough. Yeah, to let them have an unusually long title. And what we're picking is not the best titles, necessarily. Mm. We're picking what we think, individually, are the best movies we have seen that happen to have titles which are distractingly long in mm. one form or another. This might mean long in terms of the number of letters. This might be long in terms of the number of syllables. It might be long in terms of they extended the title more than you'd think they would have, but mm. it's maybe not as long as some of the others. This is all highly subjective. Uh, I, what I have done is I we don't rank things here at the Iron List. We each pick our number one favorite. Yeah. We save that for the end. But before then, we're just doing all willy-nilly. 
I have decided I'm going to list all of my movies in order of shortest title to longest title. Ah, clever. Okay. But I'm saving my favorite for the last, which is not the longest title. It's like the second mm. longest title. So I will. I'm saving that one for last because that one is. I still think mm. the movie that I think is not only maybe it's not the best movie on my list, but it's the best movie that justifies its title. Yeah. Uh, so that's how I went about mine. Whitney might have done something a little different, but oh. yeah, these movies are going to be from all different genres. Mm. I got comedies, westerns. Action movies, all kinds of weird shit on my list, uh, and I imagine Whitney does too. Uh, Whitney, is there anything else you want to say before we get uh, going here? Well, yes, there are a lot of very unusual films out there. If if you have a, an unusually long title, chances are you have a creative enough person that they're making kind of a daring film, mm. uh, which means... Um, there's a lot of really unusual films out there that I haven't gotten around to seeing. The access to some of these things is limited. Uh, the film with the longest title in history... Oh, is it... Is uh, not one I've seen. Is and it Night of the Day of the uh, Dawn of the Sun of the Bride of the Return of the Revenge of the, of the Terror of the Attack of the Evil Mutant Alien Flesh-Eating Hellbound Zombified Living Dead Part 2? That's the longest film title of all time. A movie that I... 41 words. I suspect only exists to have that title. Yeah, and that and that and you know what? I've read up on it, and it sounds awful. Ah. Like I don't want to see that movie. But there are some really uh, unusual titles out there that I do want to see. Like uh, I, I still haven't seen Marat Saad, mm. uh, which, which is we were not doesn't sound like a long title. Uh, yeah, the the full title is it's based on a play. It's called uh, "The Persecution and Assassination of Jean Paul Marat," is performed by the inmates of the Asylum of Charenton under the direction of the Marquis de Sade, mm. uh, called Marat slash Saad for short. Uh, yeah, try fitting that on a marquee. You I gotta cut it down to something. You know, I've worked at, at theaters in my life, and I had to change letters on a marquee, and I always tried to get the longest possible version of the title up there. Sometimes yeah. we couldn't. Uh, um, I'll, I'll say this. The film that looks the most satisfying on a marquee, in capital red letters, is The Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Just fits so perfectly on there, just aesthetically speaking. Name. Um, um, there's a lot of films. I tried to, like, watch a few films that have, uh, you know, particularly... Uh, long or unwieldy titles mm. in order to sort of catch up. A couple of them made it on my list. A couple of them didn't. Uh, but a few that I wasn't able to catch before we did this list, and mm. I apologize if any of these are your favorites, are uh, Who is Harry Kellerman and Why is He Saying Those Terrible Things About yeah, Me? I haven't seen that one either. Uh, let's see. I saw this a long, long time ago, and I liked it, but I wasn't able to track it down and watch it in time to see it freshly and actually speak to it but the positively true adventures of the alleged Texas cheerleader murdering mom chainsaw murdering mom is there a chainsaw in there? No, it's cheerleader. Oh, cheerleader. She murdered cheerleaders, not chainsaws. I thought there was a chainsaw in there. No, I think, oh, you're, yeah. I think you're using it with something yeah. else. But I think there was a Holly Hunter TV movie. Yeah, it was. Uh, and I remember liking it a lot, but I haven't seen it since like the 90s. So yeah, I didn't I, feel comfortable I, speaking about it on the list. Uh, let's see what we got here. Uh, the Effect of Gamma Rays on Man in the Moon Marigolds, which is a movie directed by Paul Newman. Uh, and I've I've projected it, but I haven't. No. That does, that's not the same as watching You've it. You've never actually sat down yeah, yeah. And, and, and watched that thing. Um and and a few others as well, but those are probably the most uh, uh, distractingly long titles that I'd ever got around to. Mm. Um, so uh, yeah, anyway, it's fun. Uh, I remember the the ability to remember movies with ridiculously long titles can be particularly useful when you're playing Hangman. <laughs> like it's not a good movie, but what a yeah. great movie title to remember is the incredibly strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed up zombies, which is a wonderful title. It's a and wonderful title. Bad movie. 
God, it's, it's, it's a bad a, movie. It's a bad movie, but it's one of those weird watchable ones that's fun, like when you're with a group. Didn't they do that one on MST3K they eventually? Did, they did yeah, indeed. And yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, Later seasons, I haven't seen every episode. It's it's really rotten. No. It's, it's a really rotten movie, but it's mm. it's a blast. Okay. Um, so, uh, I guess mm. let's just get started. Uh, again, these are going to be all over the place, mm. and these are all recommendations of, of varying degrees. Uh, and Whitney, what do you want to start with? What's your number? Um, what's your number see. ten? I'm going to go with the one I, I just watched tonight. I was trying to catch up on some of these films, and I was only able to see one. And unfortunately, I was only seeing one because this one was two hours and fifteen minutes long. Uh-huh. Uh, take, takes out a chunk of the evening. But I watched those magnificent men and their flying machines, or how I flew from London to Paris in twenty five hours and eleven minutes. Okay, uh, it's about an air race in 1910. Okay, uh, it's. Is that, does do they have to go all the way around the world in like eighty days or? Well, it's in the title. How I flew from London to Paris in twenty five hours and eleven minutes. Doesn't so it they not go take from London to, London to Paris in twenty five hours and eleven minutes? Isn't that actually like? Well, kind of not that. I, long, I also just said it was set in nineteen ten, so it's old timey okay. air flying machines that okay. people are just inventing for the first time. God, you know what they could use are some jaunty jalopies. That's what they should. Do. <laughs> I, I didn't see the not magnificent men. It's some other kind of people in yeah. their jaunty jalopies. Yeah, those those magnificent bastards in their jaunty jalopies. <laughs> um, I'm looking up jaunty jalopies. jaunty jalopies. Uh, yeah, this is uh, it's about. A, of those daring young men in their jaunty jalopies, and that's the full title. There's not a, yeah. an and or an or, and it is a, a sequel to the those magnificent yeah. men in their flying machines. Yeah, it's a fictional story of how a, a British lord catches wind that his, I think it's his son or his heir is working on a new uh, flying machine. Ever, these are all the rage coming up with these new kinds of ways to pilot and. Uh, he decides he's a newspaper owner and he decides, Hey, I'm rich. I could get a lot of press. If I do this, I'm going to invite a lot of people from around the world to bring their flying machines here. And we're going to fly from London to Paris and whoever wins wins. And that's, yeah. and everybody wins. Cause it's just going to be a big fun thing. Yeah. Um, for the first 80 minutes of the film, there's no race. It's really frustrating. <laughs> oh, God. That's a lot. Like, what are they doing that it's whole like time? You're 10 minutes into Bride of Frankenstein by the time they start the race in this movie. What, what, like, seriously, well, what they, are they... They go around the world and they introduce all the characters. Okay, so, um, that, that takes some so time, but like we 90 have a, minutes? I it? guess the big American star is Stuart Whitman. He plays this cowboy guy who's wow, also a big Stuart aviator. Whitman. Yeah, I know. What a get <laughs> from Night of the Lepus. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> No, Stuart, he's well known in like cowboy circles. I, he's not unknown, but yeah. it's like it's, if that's your biggest get, it's not the. Well, he's, he's, yeah, he's, you want to put an American in your movie, hmm. like oh, who do we put in our like hmm. big British escape movie? We need we need an American. Okay, Steve McQueen. Okay, great. <laughs> Let's get him. Hmm. He's he's a box office. You know the superstar, and the, and the biggest uh, British name uh, to to my eye would be Terry Thomas. Terry ah, Thomas the great Terry Thomas. Terry Thomas, the I, they extract somehow extracted England in liquid form and formed it into a person, and that was Terry yeah. Thomas. He's a delight, really, really <laughs> funny actor. But uh, yeah, we get to meet uh, the the British flyers. We get to meet the. German flyers and they're all wearing uh, World War One Kaiser helmets and they're all very military minded and uh, th- they're so concerned about the glory of Germany that they haven't bothered to acknowledge that nobody actually knows how to fly any of these planes. So they just say, mm. just, just build something and read the manual. Everything's very broadly stereotypical. The tone is very uh, wacky races, like the old Hanna-Barbera cartoon. 
in that it's just really sort of farcical and slapsticky. Mm. Uh, and yeah, that first part, um, there's a lot of like crashes and people getting their planes ready and everybody's gathering in England. And the big drama comes when uh, Stuart Whitman begins to romance uh, uh, Sarah Miles, who is uh, the intended of, I think it's Robert Morley. He's like the the son of the famous Lord who's hosting the mm. event. He's a good looking young blonde man and she, he's going to marry uh Sarah Miles, but Stuart Whitman, this dashing, handsome, question mark, uh, cowboy comes in from America and starts charming her, and it's this big love triangle. Okay. It's like Pearl Harbor. Big, long movie with a love triangle when you just want to get to the goddamn action. Like, how much... Seriously, Pearl Harbor takes... For, I know they're trying to do the whole, like, mm. Titanic thing. We're like, we'll get to Pearl Harbor eventually. Mm. And I'm like, I think you missed the point of Pearl Harbor. I don't know, like... <laughs> And uh, it, it's it's pretty good. Uh, there's some, like, silent film footage at the beginning, and Red Skelton is the host. Okay. He's, like, the crypt keeper, I guess, of this of this movie. Good picture. Uh, and then uh, once all the, the shenanigans have ended and they've selected a winner, and I'm not going to tell you who wins. Just Thank so you. you. Can, you can, you can I do want to see this. Um, there's a really fun little epilogue that takes place in modern day and set, that just set, sort of says it took them 25 hours and 11 minutes to go from London to Paris you can get on a Concorde and get there in seven minutes now. Yeah. And and the big joke is it shows, uh, it cuts back to Red Skelton in modern day, sitting in an airport waiting for his flight to take off and it's delayed. What a, what a joke. <laughs> That's a good yeah, joke. That's a good joke. That's funny. Yeah, good okay. good little punchline there. And awesome. Well, uh, my number 10 is uh, a film that is, it actually, like, there's a few films, as I said, I'm going to go from shortest title to longest title. Mm -hmm. My first few aren't, like, distractingly long, but the way that they're structured makes them feel long. Okay. So, for example, my number 10 is a movie with a very odd title, and it feels like they crammed, like, three different movie titles mm. together. And you don't know why they did it. It's called Django Kill! <laughs> if you live, shoot! Wait, so the instruction, that's an imperative statement to Django. Django, yeah, comma, kill. Yes, not kill Django, but Django, you kill. Go yes, kill Django. Please, yeah. And there's a dot, dot, dot. There's yeah. an ellipsis. Okay. So it's Django, kill, kill, dot, dot, dot. Kill with an exclamation point or Django, kill, ellipsis? I think there's an exclamation point at the end of the whole thing, at okay. the end of the whole statement. So I think the whole statement is supposed to be yelled. Mm. Uh, and then if you live, comma, mm. shoot. But you already told him to kill. So mm. was he supposed to, like, kill you with a garrote? Well, he, maybe if he didn't live. Maybe shoot is not an imperative statement. Maybe shoot is an interjection. Like, if, if you, you live, live, shoot. Shoot. <laughs> if you live, god damn it. It's actually the the origin of the title uh, is uh, the. Imagine, it, imagine it's more graceful in the original Italian. The original Italian title uh, it translates to "If you live, shoot." Okay. What happened is after the success of the original movie uh, Django. Hmm. Uh, which you've never and seen. Franco Nero, yeah. Franco Nero film. It is a beastly western, just violent and <laughs> vicious and simple. And, it's one of Quentin Tarantino's favorites, and and you can see why. And it's it's excellent, but it's harsh. Um, the success of Django led to a a large number of films that were also spaghetti westerns. Spaghetti westerns being films that were uh, westerns, usually set in America or Mexico but filmed in Italy using Italian film crews and often international stars. Um, and a lot of movies would just slap Django on them. Just call it Django. Like, is it a sequel to Django? No. Is anyone in this movie called Django? 
No. <laughs> Franco Nero's not in it. No. And uh, it was weird that I actually couldn't fit any uh, uh, Gialli on this mm. list because Gialli are, are quite renowned for having really long titles. But the ones that have the longest titles... It just didn't fit, and there's a few. It's so just, just not good movies. Not as good, not good enough to make my list. Like barely, um, like, like at least one of the honorable mentions. But like, uh, there's a lot of spaghetti westerns that have enjoyable long titles, including especially Sartana. I found has a lot of good ones. Like I've never seen a Sartana movie, but here's a great title: Have a good funeral, my friend. Sartana will pay <laughs> for the funeral. That's Presumably ge- the funeral. It's very generous. Yeah, here's one called Django and Sartana are coming, dot, dot, dot. It's the end. (laughs) Light the fuse. Sartana is coming. Let's go and kill Sartana. Trinity and Sartana are coming. Okay, there's a formula. Hmm. Hallelujah and Sartana strikes again. (laughs) These are all great. (laughs) I haven't seen any of those movies, though. But I've seen a fair number of the Django films, and for my money, the best... Is Django Kill If You Live Shoot? And I want to give a, uh, uh, a caveat on this one because a lot of the spaghetti westerns that are popular here in America, particularly the Sergio Leone films, you know, they're violent, they're they're subversive, but they're also they're relatively dirty. relatively palatable compared to the ones we don't get over here. Yeah, they're, they're pretty, uh, generally speaking, mm-hmm. the Sergio Leone westerns, at least the ones that I've seen, mm-hmm. are pretty bleak. They're kind of nihilistic movies in a lot of ways. Right, but there's this general patina of class mm. that I think is draped over most of them. Uh, well, and that's brought, brought about by the style. Yeah, exactly. He had a great style for that. A lot of the other spaghetti westerns were made often by filmmakers who also made Gialli, which is a popular, uh, mm-hmm. violent Italian uh, horror genre. And they play a lot like horror movies. And Django Kill, If You Live, Shoot, is basically the kind of Western they would make if in hell. Like, they're <laughs> in hell. Everyone who's in, who's in hell gets mm-hmm. to be part of making this movie, and this is the kind of movie you make. And it opens with the great Tomas Melian, one of the best, most underrated Italian uh, uh, spaghetti Western actors uh, he's not italian by the way um he is killed after uh, a big gold heist and he is shot and he is killed and then he is resurrected uh and uh, the guys who resurrect him uh these two native american gentlemen they resurrect him and they turn the leftover gold from the heist into gold bullets and, uh. they, and they say we will follow you if you tell us what happens after you die also, ah, okay. you can use these gold bullets to get your revenge, but when you run out of bullets, you have to go back. And you're like, oh, this is awesome. It's not presented <laughs> quite in that kind of the crow way, but it's all in there. Mm. So it's got this real gothic sensibility. And Django, he's never named in the movie, but we'll call him Django for clarity. The, the Django character, yeah. He, um, he tracks down the guys who killed him. All of them have just been murdered because they wandered into a different movie. They go into this town, and the town is just called The Unhappy Place. And everyone in it is being constantly tortured and miserable and killing each other. And, yeah, the, the guys who stole the gold from Django, like, all but one of them have already been murdered by this town. Because the town is even worse than the Jeez. movie Django was in. And then Django <laughs> ends up, like, getting involved in this, like, weird... Like homoerotic uh, uh, killer cult. Uh, that part is really regressive. We're going to worry about that. That part. That part's not say, cool. This movie sounds amazing. It's it's really there's this whole subplot with a woman who's like being held captive in an attic, and she keeps trying to wave off Django and warn him about things, mm. and he can't do it. And 
Oh, it's so violent and cruel and in a way that in a way that is if you're into this and this is the kind of movie that can really put you off. I totally get that. If you are interested in the Italian spaghetti western subgenre and I mean the subgenre part of it, like the weird weird stuff. This is a weird kind of violence poetry. Parts of it are aggressive, parts of it are ugly. No denying that it is a product of its time, and I'm not mm-hmm. making excuses for it. But it's a horror movie western in mm-hmm. a lot of ways, and it's really fascinating. And I do think that if that sounds palatable to you, it's worth a look. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's my number ten. What's uh, what's your number nine? Uh, let's see here. What do I want to just talk about next? Um, you know, if you're talking about like really horrendous, vile movies that are set in hell, well, you don't have to. Uh, but okay. <laughs> um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut one of my films off because I just thought of um, mm. the first two Coffin Joe movies had really wonderful long titles. They did. I've never seen yeah, them, but yeah. they did. Um, and I, the second one was called "This Night I'll Possess Your Corpse." Yeah, that's a fun one. Isn't that's it? a fun. One. That's, that's evocative. That's the one where he goes to hell. Um, what was the Tums- first? Um, Co- Coffin Joe is. Um, mm. Imagine if, uh, like, uh, Elvira. At midnight, the, I'll take your soul. At midnight, I'll take your soul. At midnight, I'll take your soul. Coffin Joe passed away recently. Actually, just passed away back in February. But um, he's a Brazilian horror host slash horror character along the lines of Elvira or the Crypt Keeper who just sort of had his shtick out in public as well as uh, the shtick he would play in movies. But his shtick was that of somebody... It's a little bit more like Sadian, like Marquis mm. de Sade-like, in that yeah. he essentially lives his life trying to piss off God. Yeah. Committing as many horrendous sins as possible and railing against the existence of God. Uh, trying to prove that life is horrible and people can be horrible to each other under the right circumstances. Uh, in, in one of his films, he kidnaps a married couple. It's like, you love each other, right? You never hurt each other. Well, what happens if I capture you, lock you in cages, and just torture you for months on end and keep you in a really hot room and never give you any water? And he ends up uh, saying, well, if, if after, at the end of that, you know, if I were to just sort of take blood out of one of you, the other one of you would drink it, wouldn't you? It's like all this twisted shit. Yeah. Um, this night I'll possess your corpse. Uh, he, we sort of get a really slick version for the first time of a Coffin Joe movie. The first one's a little bit shabby. Second one, uh, he lays down his philosophy a little bit more clearly and also declares that he's looking for essentially uh, the perfect woman so he can make an heir. So there's a lot of mm. uh, kidnapping of women and testing them with like horror traps. And of course, when he uh, falls asleep or maybe he actually dies, he gets a vision of what hell is like. Mm. He actually well, it sounds go- like he'd go there. He'd go there. And uh, the movie's in black and white, but the hell sequence is in color. <laughs> ah, it's fun. So, yeah. And, and he's really terrified and there's arms ripping him apart. And it's really, really wonderful. Does um, he get his like comeuppance and shit? No, or? well, no. He comes back and he just says, well, that was really horrible. Better stay alive. <laughs> <laughs> Forever. Forever. And uh, <laughs> and in fact, a lot of uh, Brazilian censors had issue with just how horrible this guy was and how he got away with it at the end of all of these movies. Mm-hmm. So if you watch certain cuts, there's always like some 
really obviously tacked on ending about how he gets his comeuppance. The most obvious is at the end of one of his TV specials, he's sitting around a table eating a human corpse with Uh a bunch of guests. He's like, there's a human foot in his hand. He's just like biting the, (laughs) the toes off, just enjoying himself and having savor. And the sensors came in and clearly just with like a pin scratched a lightning bolt directly onto the film strip because they didn't they couldn't cut the movie any other way. (laughs) And like and just added like a kaboom sound effect. And then they showed an exterior of the house and then overlaid a really fake explosion. He was struck by lightning all of a sudden. And then afterwards, just like and Poochie burned up on the way to his home planet. (laughs) This Bible verse saying, and God punishes those who are wicked, please. He didn't really get away with it. He didn't really get away with it. <laughs> That's hilarious. Coffin Joe is is wonderful, mm. sick, twisted horror shit that I adore. And mm. I recommend you watch a Coffin Joe film it every is, Halloween. Is your number, out of curiosity mm. for those who might be curious, mm. is your official number nine pick, this night I'll possess your corpse, mm. at midnight I'll take your soul, or is it like a tie? Uh, it's the same. It's this night I'll possess your corpse. This night I'll possess yeah. your corpse. That's, that's yeah. your pick. Okay. All right, cool. Uh, all right, moving on. Uh, if I were ranking my films in terms of quality, mm-hmm. this would probably be at least number two or three. Okay, but because I'm going off of like how long they are when I type them into a Word document, <laughs> this is my number nine. This movie is wonderful. We talked about it at length before, uh, and it is a movie that uh, it does justify its unwieldy title. Okay, because it's not just a mad world. <laughs> it's not just a mad mad world. It's not even a mad, mad, mad world. <laughs> Is it a mad, 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 mad world? No. That's that, too mad. That's too far. <laughs> you gotta scale that back. It is a mad, 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 mad world. Mad, 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 Max. Uh, and it is one of the funniest movies ever made. And it is funny on a scale that we don't have anymore. I cannot remember the last time I saw a comedy with this much ambition that well, was also a broad comedy. I, I I can't think of any comedies um that are yeah that have like this kind of a cast anymore. Yeah. Usually like maybe maybe like Wes Anderson will do something broad like the Grand Budapest Hotel, but a little bit. He doesn't yeah. use his cast the same way. That yeah, is that Stanley so. Kramer does, and it's a mad, 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 mad world. A mad, 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 mad world is probably one of my favorite films of the '60s. Uh, it's hilarious all the way through, and after a while, you're laughing just because you're exhausted. Mm-hmm. It's hugely long. It's gigantic widescreen. Mm-hmm. It has a cast of every comedian that was alive at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Including so, but not limited to We got yeah, Milton, <laughs> Milton Berle, Sid Caesar, Buddy Hackett, Ethel Merman, Mickey Rooney, Dick Sean, Phil Silvers, Terry Thomas again mm. uh, Jonathan Winters, Edie Adams, Dorothy Provine, Spencer Tracy is in this We got Jim Backus, we got, uh, hold on, hold on we got, uh, Well, Jimmy Durante is the one who sets off the action Jimmy Durante yeah. is in this thing, Andy Devine is in this the thing Peter Falk have a, a little bit, uh, Jimmy Buster Ch- Keaton has a cameo Yeah, we got Leo Gorsi, Sterling Holloway uh, God, Arnold Stang, Carl Reiner, Zazu Pitts Oh my gosh, just everyone Don Knotts, yeah. like everyone Hmm and you know, and, and there are uncredited appearances. Jack Benny has a cameo in this. Jerry Lewis has a cameo in this. Like it's absurd mm. how many actors are in this, and that's part of the joke. the The actual like scale of this movie is so top heavy mm. that that becomes the gag. And the brilliance of the movie is that it starts really small. 
starts with a couple of people in their various cars and they're on the road and a guy gets in a car accident and it's Jimmy Durante and he's dying on the side of the road and he tells them that there is a big suitcase full of money that's buried underneath a big W Hmm. on the beach in California somewhere. I forget what city he said, but um, it's buried under a big W. It's buried under a big W. And so they all go, oh, well, we'll just politely get in our cars and all drive over there and enjoy this together. Very calmly. Very calmly and relaxedly. Get in your car, get in your car right now. Get in your car. It, it turns into a madcap uh, chase immediately. Mm-hmm. It's and every time they interact with anybody, that person gets in on the chase, and then the chase starts escalating as people like start taking different cars and start flying in planes, and buildings catch on fire, and it gets huge. It gets so unbelievably huge, you just can't help but laugh. (laughs) It's so absurd. It's so giant that it's just that's the joke, and it ends with a pratfall. Like, it, it all builds to yeah. somebody falling on their ass. Like, yeah. that's it. Who do you think is the MVP of this movie? If you had to pick one person oh, who is gosh. the absolute funniest is, person in this uh, movie. Uh, Phil Silvers is really? the MP3. Yeah. Okay. The MP3? The MP3 of this, yeah. <laughs> you heard me. Download it right now. Uh, I, was, I was hoping you, you would notice that one. But, uh... <laughs> He, Phil Silvers plays sort of he, he's like the the one with the least amount of scruples among mm. in a oh, cast of people who yeah, has no scruples whatsoever. He's evil. Yeah, he's a bad person. <laughs> in fact, he they spoofed this in an episode of The Simpsons, and they decided just to put Phil Silvers in the episode. Oh yeah, it was like uh, okay, we gotta gotta go get the treasure. It's in the Simpsons episode. It's buried under a big T, and of course, yeah. it was just a bad guy trying to get him out of the, his jail cell. Mm. But yeah, everybody starts racing. All of Springfield is racing, and then they cut to a uh, Phil Silvers as himself, his character yeah. from Mad Mad World, just saying, "You kid, you told me this river was shallow," and he sinks <laughs> down in the river, <laughs> which Marks is something that happens. Yeah, something yeah. that happens in the movie. Yeah, uh, for me, it's Jonathan Winters. Uh, well, Jonathan yeah. Winters is unbelievably funny in this movie, and he plays <laughs> he plays the movie like he's the Hulk. Like he'll start like he starts off with just this ordinary, maybe the most ordinary person in the cast, and then after a while, he starts like ripping apart a gas station and breaking through brick walls, <laughs> and it's so unbelievable. The movie is huge. The movie justifies its wonderful title. It's not my favorite movie with a, with an unwieldy title, mm. but it is absolutely a treasure, yeah. and and you should totally see it. Absolutely. All right, absolutely. moving on. Uh, Criterion put it out. Oh, and with good cause. And, and there's multiple cuts of it. Be sure to watch the longest possible because the more it, the more of that movie, the better. I say that's actually 100 yeah. percent true. I when I heard the the cut was that long because I'd seen it before. I was like, oh, that's gonna like ruin the comedy pacing or whatever. Like, nope, no, better. It's, it's, every every second it's like, of it, it's like is 190 amazing. minutes or something. It starts it was, off like a little slow, and you're wondering like how funny is this gonna get? But by the time you're an hour in, you're just like, how could this even get any funnier? And then it just keeps getting funnier. It just gets crazier, so crazier. Yeah, crazy. All right, moving on. What's your number eight? Um, I'll start. I'll do a, a, another obscure one. This is, I guess, a documentary film, but okay. it's called uh, "Powers of Ten: A Film Dealing with the Relative Size of Things in the Universe and the Effect of Adding Zero. Wow! It's, it's um, I never even heard of this one. You haven't heard of Powers of Ten? No. This is, this is one we watched in science class all the time. Okay. And uh, it's it's essentially a film that. It's a one single unbroken shot, uh, you know, using photographic effects. Let me look up the year it was made, um, because Powers of Ten, yeah, Powers of Ten was uh, it came out in 1968, but it it starts in uh, starts in space, 
and it zooms through space at a certain rate, mm-hmm. uh, showing you just sort of the vastness of the cosmos. And there's right. you know this beautiful music playing. And just sort of zoom space, and we're getting like down narrower and narrower and narrower as we zoom through space until we see the Earth. We zoom in on Earth, and then we zoom in through the clouds, and we zoom down into a park, and we see a guy laying on a blanket. His hand is on his chest. We zoom down and down and down and down into that guy's hand. We enter the guy's hand, and we start seeing teenier and teenier things like his cells and then down to subatomic particles. Mm. That's all it is. It's just this one photographic visual uh, experiment done by How Charlie. How long is this? Um, it is, uh, it's like eight minutes long. Okay, so it's like a yeah. short. Yeah, it's a short film. There's no rule that says it has to be a feature, but I, mm. for some reason I thought you were describing a feature. So, okay, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense now. I get it now. Okay. Well, it sounds cool. Yeah, it, it's just this really, really awesome film that's really captivating to watch. I, I love uh, the science films that try to sort of incorporate the vastness or the smallness of the world we live in. Uh, because the human imagination can't really wrap around those things. So a lot of a lot of uh, films really try. Mm. Uh, I was introduced... Uh, one of our uh, fans actually introduced me to this recently. But they sent me a link on social media about a film that was trying to trace the future and how long, essentially how long the universe would live and what would happen. And, you know, okay, the sun goes supernova and Earth dies out. Okay, we know that's going to happen. And that's like a little tiny blip in the vastness of time and how, you know, galaxies are going to dissipate and the universe is going to go dark. When you start imagining the universe is going to keep on expanding. When you start imagining the actual, like, length of time the universe has existed and will continue to Mm -hmm. exist... You start like your your mind can't handle it. Yeah. Like you just can't handle that level of vastness. Yeah. So I guess the movie should have a long title. Yeah. So the, this starts with the vastness of the universe mm-hmm. and goes down to the tininess of subatomic particles. Yeah. And uh, and, and it's, then it's keeps just... going to a guy at a coffee shop named Ned. And, and then what's down at the middle? Ziggy. Ziggy is there in the middle. <laughs> well, that sounds cool. Yeah, is that like available um, on like YouTube or something? I, that can, I'm can, sure can, it's can on be found YouTube. easily. Yeah, okay, you can that's find cool. It I'll check that out. Cool. So, um, yeah, like one million. How long is one million seconds? I actually don't know. One, it's like eleven days. Okay. Like one million, one million seconds is eleven and a half days. I, I'm a film critic because I'm bad at math. Oh. <laughs> also because I don't like sports. No, it's a, a million seconds. Is, like to, just to give you an idea of the difference between a million and a billion. A million is yeah. eleven and a half days. A billion seconds is thirty-one years. Yeah. Yeah. It really puts billionaires yeah. into perspective yeah. too, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Like yeah. this, the the absurd amount. Of of the size of things is yeah, it's like oh I have two hundred billion dollars really I couldn't spend all that if I tried Nor and could I gave, you and I gave it to you know everybody I knew I would still never run out of money why yeah. do you have that much that's absurd mm-hmm. all right uh, well I guess I'll move on uh, my next film is a title that I actually didn't originally consider for this okay because I didn't think it was a long title but it is a long enough title that after the movie was released. They took off part of the title because the title was considered too long for marketing purposes. Okay. So the title of the movie now, and you'll find this on streaming services, is called Hmm. Three Burials. But the original title was The Three Burials of Melchiades Estrada. It's a good movie, too. It's a great movie. It's directed by Tommy Lee Jones. It stars Tommy Lee Jones and Barry Pepper. Uh, It is a very... it's It's a contemporary Western, and it is absolutely sharp on point, one of Tommy Lee Jones' best performances of the last 20 years. He's really fucking good in that, and it's really beautifully directed, too. Uh, and it's a story of uh, Tommy Lee Jones is, I, I think he's a rancher, 
And he has a very good friend named Melchiades Estrada who is killed by Barry Pepper, who's like a Border Patrol agent. Yeah, yeah. And this Barry... Is a, this is a comment, comment on the Border Patrol. Oh, yeah. And uh, Barry Pepper uh, decides that this looks bad, so he just buries the guy. Mm-hmm. The body is found, and Tommy Lee Jones wants to find the killer, and he also wants to bury Melchiades Estrada in his hometown like he promised he would. And the problem is, is that because he's not a family member, he's not allowed to to accept the body, and so they just bury him in some random cemetery somewhere. So when Tommy Lee Jones finds out that Barry Pepper killed him, he takes Barry Pepper at gunpoint to dig up Melchiades Estrada and forces Barry Pepper at gunpoint to, to drag re- the body, him, yeah. to um, drag the body back to his hometown and rebury it and put him through the yeah. penance that he deserves. It it's so good. It. You're describing it uh, like it would be one of those like Sergio Leone westerns, but yeah. it actually has a little bit more of uh, a realist tone to it. It's almost like a John it's, Sayles movie. Well, I was yeah. gonna. It, it's heavily inspired by John Cassavetes. Mm. Uh, Cassavetes specifically bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. Oh, there you go. Uh, which is about a guy who's transporting a human head in a bag back to a, a mobster guy. Which was, of course, inspired by the Joe Pesci film Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag. Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag came after. <laughs> There was a movie, people, no one talks about this. There was a movie about Joe Pesci as a hitman transporting eight severed human heads in a duffel bag and the heads keep rolling around and he keeps losing them and he runs at all these quirky characters. There's one one scene where they they sing Mr. Sandman acapella, the heads do. This movie, like, is dying for a Shout Factory release. <laughs> and we will happily do that commentary track. Eight that Heads in a Duffel Bag. And that's the title, Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag. That, that, was, that was a major Hollywood release. That was theatrically released. Such a weird fucking film. But anyway, anyway, you were saying. You were saying it's oh, more just, of a John Cassavetes film. It's more yeah. of a John Cassavetes yeah. film. And it, and it is because the John Cassavetes film is very much about uh, how the the main character is kind of deteriorating. Yeah. Uh, John Cassavetes, uh, very famously an alcoholic, yeah. uh, was sort of trying to depict his own kind of personal downfall in a lot of ways in that movie. Uh, just sort of the way his own soul was deteriorating over the course of his life and how he ruined everything. And that's what's going on with the protagonist as well. Mm. Uh, and I feel like that's a quality Tommy Lee Jones is trying to capture the way that they're not going on some, some sort of noble mission. And mm. when they finally do it, they'll have accomplished something and someone will have, experienced a redemption it's about how this mission is all they really have left and it's gonna kill them yeah and uh, it is the at least uh, there could be more hmm. but to the best of my knowledge it is one of two Tommy Lee Jones movies in which for an extended period he drabs he drags a corpse across the country what's the other one Lonesome Dove oh yeah you're it's right it's a miniseries but yeah, I think yeah. it's I think it's an interesting yeah. corollary regardless yeah. but um uh, in any case, if you've never seen Three Burials of Melchiades Estrada, or mm. if, as you'll see, see it on streaming services, Three Burials, it is an excellent motion picture. <laughs> it absolutely deserves a bigger audience. Mm. And uh, yeah, if you if you didn't know Tommy Lee Jones could direct, oh, he can direct. Oh, yeah. he's really yeah. talented. Um, all right, done, let's, let's how, move on. She's done three features. He did The Homesman, and oh, yeah. I feel like I'm forgetting something. The Homesman is good too. I never saw The Homesman. Yeah, you told me it was good, amazing. It, yeah, it's a really, really good film. Yeah. It's, um, I'll look. I'll look up. Make sure we're not forgetting something because I feel like we are. It's a good film that addresses the disservice done to women, not just mm. in in you know actual American history like the Old West, but in the way women have pretty much been shunted off to the side in a lot of westerns. That it's ah. a very masculine genre. I think he's trying to undo a lot of that. Okay, uh, he's done two other TV movies. Oh, okay. so those are his only two theatrical releases. Right. He did a TV movie in 1995, in which he co-starred uh, with. 
uh, Terry Kinney, Francis McDormand, and Sham Shepard called The Good Old Boys. All right. Uh, which is about, I'm just quoting IMDb here, an aging cowboy must choose between his desire to remain free and the responsibilities of maintaining a family. Uh, he also directed a TV movie in 2011 called The Sunset Limited. Um, through a chan- Oh, I remember hearing about this. Through a chance encounter, two men of opposing ideologies deliberate spiritual, philosophical, and profound matters in a New York City apartment. Oh, it's just uh, a it's, talk movie. It's based it. on a Cormac McCarthy play, and it only stars Samuel L. Jackson and Tommy Lee Jones. I want to see that. that yeah, great. I actually heard that was pretty good, but I never right. got around to it. All right. uh, so, anyway, so, but he's only done two feature, you All know, right. presentations. All right. So, what's your next film? Uh, let's see. What do I want to talk about next? Uh, how about we just. Go straight into cult territory. <laughs> We've been there already. Let's, uh, yeah, get, let's, um, let's delve further. This this one's actually really well known, so I feel a little bit churlish even bringing it up because uh, I like to use these lists to sort of recommend films. But everybody's yeah. seen The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. Yeah, it's on my list too. Uh, yeah, um, so I just crossed that off. Yeah, uh, you've seen it. It's odd. Um, it I was, hope you've seen it. I hope you've seen on it. A, um, audience, I really hope you've seen this really wonderful quirky film. It's it's quirky. It has its audience. Uh, yeah, it definitely has but a But it, it's also a little bit impenetrable. Uh, it has... Uh, the premise is uh, Buckaroo Banzai, uh, sort of a racist caricature. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's... Uh, has, a, I think, a Japanese mother and a, an American father? Yeah, but he's played by Peter Weller. He's played by Peter Weller. Yeah, he could, you so. could, have, could have gotten a Japanese actor, but he's but, played uh, by Peter Weller in the but, movie. But, but the idea he's, is... He's, he's like the, the world's most perfect human being, more or less. I, I look at him as like a living Barbie doll. You know how like Barbie has every job... But like Rubanza every job, every like job, every yeah. job simultaneously. Like he's in the process of like testing out a new high tech rocket car, and as soon as he gets out, they're like, "Okay, you're needed in brain surgery, Buckaroo Banzai." He's like, "Okay, okay, no, good, good thing I'm done with brain surgery. Okay, get the band together. We're jamming at a bar tonight." And yeah, he's, and so then he's, he's, he's a, a rock star samurai brain surgeon rocket car pilot. Yeah. who uh, using his rocket car unwittingly breaks into the eighth dimension letting red electroids into our dimension. It turns out they've been here for a while uh, and infiltrating everything using the brain of a mad scientist uh, played by John, played by Lithgow, John Lithgow, who is one of his next greatest level performances. Insane. Yeah. Next level insane John Lithgow. Mm-hmm. Like he's one of the best like mad scientist type mm-hmm. actors where he can just go from like zero to a thousand in a second. And mm-hmm. this is one of his all time best film performances. This movie explains very little. It just sort of, it's all it, very straightforward and matter of fact to the point where you're going to feel like you're lost in the first 10 minutes. The, the best explanation I've ever heard of this movie. And mm-hmm. I, I think this was in like entertainment weekly or something a long time ago when they're recommending cult films, but uh, they were, they described the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension as the 26th episode of a, of a television series. And you missed the first 25. Yeah. Yeah. They, like they, all they, the char- the, they the expect characters. you to know it by now. And you just, there's literally the, the whole movie is summed up in one scene where Jeff Goldblum, who is dressed like a cowboy <laughs> for reasons that will never fully be explained. Uh, he, they're like sneaking through Buckaroo Banzai's lab. And they walk past a watermelon hooked up to some kind of sci-fi machine. Mm. And Jeff Goldblum asks, why "Why is there a watermelon there? (laughs) And someone says, I'll tell you later. Mm. It's never brought up again. That Mm. was clearly an earlier adventure. That watermelon is connected to something. And if it's Mm. ever disconnected, all of time will unravel. Something weird. But the implication is that if you paid attention, you would know that by now. Hmm. And they just drop you right into the middle of this weirdness. And and that can be very appealing. Uh, re- just sort of assuming that the audience is on board 
rather than bothering to establish anything. In a lot of ways, that's bad storytelling. Oh yeah, uh, but the typical audience member is gonna not gonna know what to do with it, this. So you need to preface this film with an explanation. But it's of what it's, you're about uh, to see. It's so wonderfully strange that it's appealing nonetheless, mm-hmm. and uh, it's easy to get wrapped up because Buckaroo Banzai and all of the the character he characters he goes on his adventures with are very cool. Yeah. They're very confident and assured, even when things get really, really strange. There's not a lot of moments of panic. It's sad when Clancy Brown dies. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there's not a, it feels like there's not a lot at stake, even though there is. Uh, uh, this I, is I, I, I dig it. I dig fun. it for how weird it is. It's fun. It's fun. And like a lot of older cult movies, yeah, there's stuff in it that is cringeworthy. Mm-hmm. And you just sort of have to either reject the movie outright or say, well, okay, well, that part sucks, but the rest mm-hmm. of it has a lot of good stuff in it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's the only, uh, it's one of only two films directed by W.D. Richter, who is mm-hmm. one of the more interesting screenwriters of also, the late 70s and 80s. He also wrote uh, Big Trouble in Little China, another yep. very odd film. He wrote Big but, Trouble in Little China. He wrote the 1979 Dracula with Frank Langella, which I mm-hmm. still maintain is one of the best adaptations. It, uh, it's, he, a, it's at least one of the... Frank Langella is, is so a very it. good Dracula. He's so damn good in it. Yeah. Uh, he he uh, wrote or co-wrote uh, the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers, okay. which is excellent. Uh, he wrote the screenplay for Needful Things, which I maintain is a better movie than most people give it credit for. Okay. Uh, he wrote uh, the Holly Hunter, Jodie Foster movie, Home for the Holidays. Oh, no kidding. Uh, which is a really wonderful, one of the better, one of, one of my two favorite Thanksgiving movies that I can think of off the top of my head. It's uh, Home for the Holidays and uh, Pieces of April. And... Um, it's a Pieces of April, the one with Katie Piece. Holmes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, haven't, a, I haven't seen Pieces of April. That's a wonderful yeah. film. That's uh, what I've heard. I've heard and, that. And is. he has, uh, and uh, he also uh, wrote a movie which I can only imagine was better on the page than it was, uh, Stealth. <laughs> I've heard no good things about <laughs> no Stealth. No one's ever said anything yeah. positive about Stealth. Um, but in any case, yeah, weird, funky, wonderful, weird movie, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I highly recommend it. All right, next up, uh, this is... N- if we were going based on quality, this would be my maybe my one or two. Okay. Uh, it is a movie that I know you love. Okay. And I don't think we need to go on in too much detail because we talk about it a lot. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to cross it off my list right now because I, I know say, what you're, right, you're about to say. Because Master and Commander, <laughs> The Far Side of the World, <laughs> oh. is one of the best adventure movies ever made. It's one of the best... Uh, uh, historical epics ever made. It's one of the best naval warfare movies ever made. It's one of the best, like, bromance movies ever made. It is just an impeccable piece of cinema. It's, not not a wrong note. It's oh. paced perfectly. Oh. Uh, the visuals are perfect. The mm-hmm. music selections are perfect. Mm-hmm. Yes, we need Bach right there. <laughs> <laughs> The, there's one complaint I have, and it's that uh, when they're on the Galapagos Islands and Dr. Maturin is collecting his, his specimens, they wanted a shot of him picking up an insect, looking past the insect and seeing the Acheron, the, the, yeah, the enemy they, ship that they're chasing. Yeah, it's a big plot point. Uh, and the, they couldn't do that because they wanted the bug to take off and his eyeline to follow and find the ship. Uh-huh. You can't train a bug to do that, so it's a CGI bug, and it looks like a CGI bug. Uh-huh. That's the only complaint I have. That's so minor. I don't it's even know if I even noticed that. It's a tiny little thing. It's I've, so minor. I'm a, so caught up in the moment, I don't care about it. There was that. a time uh, where I watched this movie all, like almost on a daily basis. Yeah, like me I'd too. like put it on just to like sort of doze off at the end of the day. This was one of the first films like I, I bought on Blu-ray and like I watched <laughs> this thing over and over again. This mm. movie is gorgeous. It's so great. Um, uh, and from what I understand, 
it is one of the most historically accurate films ever made. I've heard that. Of, of at least this period. Yeah, historians have looked at oh, it and gone like, eh, that's pretty like, much it, actually. Like the, the, the power structure, the way the <laughs> sleeping was, the way... Uh, the attention to physical detail on yeah, the exactly, ship. Yeah, the way the ships actually looked. The whole who movie would, pretty much takes place be, uh, only on this one ship. Yeah, the, the, the HMS Surprise, uh, yeah. captained by lucky Captain Jack Aubrey. Played by Russell Crowe. Uh, and uh, and his, his best friend is Dr. Maturin. Played by Paul Bettany. And of course... They were probably better known for playing, you know, best friends, but there's, you know, more to it than that in The Beautiful Mind. Uh, this is an infinitely better pairing of them. Uh, they are, they play off each other wonderfully because there's a lot of respect, but they also, kind of like a great Star Trek episode, they represent sort of opposite ideologies. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's all this big, wonderful chase where uh, Russell Crowe has to uh, find a French... Basically, pirate. He's he's like well, he's told, an, an enemy vessel. He's an enemy yeah. vessel, but he's functionally a pirate. Like mm. he's taking out ships and killing people, mm. and he's got a faster vessel, a newer vessel, and the, the only way to defeat him is through sheer cleverness. And which, it's, <laughs> which Lucky Jack has in spades. It's such a cool <laughs> film. Everything uh, about this film is just works mm. for me. Even that shot, I I couldn't even yeah. I didn't remember that. Oh, shot. and and and, yeah. uh, and one other complaint: no women. There's there's well, no there's there's one shot of one woman and she doesn't have any lines. Yeah, they they visit an mm. island and they re- but, restock and there's a woman, but like but it, it's it's a time and a place where women weren't permitted. So yeah. we're just and telling I, and a I think story. And men. I think that's part of the narrative. You mm. know, like it's like the thing. John Carpenter's the thing. There are no women because it's about what happens when you put men in a pressure yeah. cooker, and I think that's part of the movie as well. You put women in a pressure cooker, they're out of there. They they solve the problem. <laughs> well, I, just, I think I think the movie would be very different, yeah. obviously. So, um, but in any case, it's one of the perfect films, and there's actually quite a few movies I would call perfect. I just don't see a flaw in it, mm. uh, and this is easily the best one in like this kind of action genre. And the mo- title happens to be kind of weird and long, so there mm. you go. Well, it, it's based on two books that yeah. were written by Patrick O'Brien. Patrick O'Brien wrote a whole series of these books. He wrote 20 of them. He unfinished, didn't finish the 21st. And the first one was called Master and Commander. And the movie takes elements from a different book, which is called The Far Side of the World. And rather confusingly, they just sort of put the two titles next to each yeah. other. Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. This is the only movie on my list. I decided early on, and you could follow this if you mm. wanted. This is my rules. I make them up. Uh, I didn't want to do like a bunch of like colons, uh, colons and hyphens. And hyphens. Yeah. I just because I can put like Star Wars Episode Eight, The mm-hmm. Last Jedi, or Star Wars Episode Five, The Empire Strikes Back. It's kind of three the, titles. The, in the line, yeah, yeah, those are long titles. Or I could do the Lord of the Rings, the Two Towers, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I feel like a cheat because like there's an there's a clear delineation between title and subtitle. Yeah. I, and here would... here this they are both. The, the right title they're because they took both books so like I mean would, this one was an exception I would permit something like uh, Pirates of the Caribbean The Curse of the Black Pearl it's uh-huh. two titles but it's the first movie yeah, it's true. Just actually. call it Pirates of the Caribbean. You don't need that. It, it's it's such a bloated film. Maybe you needed two titles. I'm actually. You know what? You're right. I feel mm. like that's a good explanation for that. Mm. I am adding that to my runners up because I, that movie is fun. It's, it's fun. It's goofy. It's, it's too long, but it's, it is it's fun. definitely too long. But I have it is a fun. very good time watching mm. that movie. That movie came out of mm. memory serves the exact same year as Master and Commander, or at least within a year. Yeah. And yeah. I feel like everyone was so high on pirates because it was this big, crazy, magical pirate movie that I think Master and Commander didn't get the attention mm. it deserved. Uh, I, and I, that's a shame. Historians call it really, his, uh, really historically accurate. Um, I remember reading a review from, of all people, Christopher Hitchens. Uh, you, you know Christopher Hitchens? Oh, yeah. Uh, 
wonderful steel trap kind of mind, enormous dickhead. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think he'd, he'd agree with me. Uh, but he... He was always very big on sort of truth and veracity and, and verisimilitude in movies. Everything needed to be accurate. Movies all sucked. Every movie sucked because none of them were true to life. <laughs> and he wrote a review of Master and Commander that said, Ooh, what a wonderful missed opportunity. You could have done something that was really historically accurate. Fuck you, Christopher Hitchens. <laughs> what are you talking about? You what could have screen? done something really historically. You, they bent over up? backwards. You made to get up things. a few characters. That's yeah, it. What are you yeah. supposed to fucking do? God it's like damn that. It. Like that. That's it came close, but nah, no cigar. Yeah. Fuck you, Christopher Hitchens. <laughs> Christ. Uh, how, I'm, I'm curious because like we had some doubles. How many do you have left? I don't want to like get uh, real let's see. I guess I have uh, five. I have five left. Okay, I have six left, so I'll go next. Right. Uh, okay, so my next. Uh, no, wait, I do have five left because right. of uh, uh, Buckra Bonsai. So you go next. All right. Um, I will do Me and You and Everyone We Know. Haven't seen this. Uh, Miranda July did this wonderful, 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 maybe one of the best films of the 2000s. Uh, little indie film in 2005, which is uh, about a group of interconnected people uh, who just sort of are living weird, quirky lives. Okay. Um, Miranda July... Play. Uh, she stars in the movie herself, and she's playing sort of an aspiring actor or aspiring artist, excuse me, who is uh, trying to make things work, but her work is a little too twee. Mm. And if you know anything about Miranda July, that describes her herself. She's trying to sort of send these really kind of cutesy, gentle, really kind of kid-friendly art installations to museums, and understands that she's going to be rejected. And there's this really wonderful uh, scene where she's filming herself. Uh, she's put together something, and then she adds a little epilogue after the fact, saying, "You're probably not watching this video anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you turn this off. You, you. I know you hate my work. I can do anything I want. Blah 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 blah. Tell you what, if you've watched this far, call my telephone number and say the word macaroni. And then her phone rings, and <laughs> she hears the the curator say <laughs> macaroni. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the other uh, main character, John Hawks, is in it. John Hawks, oh, excellent, excellent, excellent actor. Such an underappreciated actor. Yeah, uh, need needs more award attention, frankly. Mm-hmm. The, the, um, the one, the 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 one, two, three punch. I think mm-hmm. of Winter's Bone, The Sessions, and um, Martha Marcy May Marlene. I didn't see Martha Marcy May Marlene, oh, but so but I did God. see The Sessions. He's really the, really good. I mean, in the he's, sessions. he's good in everything, but yeah. man, those three that's they came out like right near each other. Wow, what a trio of performances. Like, holy crap. Yeah, John Hawks is uh, a single dad who's he's getting divorced. He's trying to reconnect with his kids. In the first scene, he decides to per- perform a little trick for his kids. He remembers a friend doing this for him. He sprays his hand with lighter fluid and lights it on fire and burns it horribly. He doesn't re- oh. didn't remember the fact that you're supposed to do that with isopropyl alcohol because it burns off without burning your hand. Oh. Uh, do it right. I'm not encouraging people to do this. No, don't. But uh, that, that's, that. that's a trick like magicians might play, you know, if they want to look like they're on fire. So he's on he's in the movie just sort of feeling like a, a complete loser. And he ends up forging this weird attraction from afar to Miranda July. Meanwhile, the kids are all having their own adventures. There's a young kid who has encounters with these two young girls who are exploring their sexuality in a very frank but almost whimsical way. Hmm. And... Uh, uh, the teenage boy is also carrying on an affair with an older woman online, so they don't really know what their the uh, their identities are, and it all culminates in a scene where a six year old boy, who 
doesn't really understand the sex talk he's seeing on the screen, but he does understand that poo is involved, starts just talking about poop. Okay. <laughs> and he's talking about, oh, well, what, what do you want to do to me? He's like, I want to poop on your butt, and then you poop on my butt. He's just saying poop <laughs> jokes. He doesn't know. <laughs> and it, it's where if you've ever heard the phrase back and forth forever that's where this, this that comes from it comes from this movie oh okay um it's a poop thing <laughs> I, thank thank you I, i'm we can move on from i'm that. describing a what sounds like kind of a weird unhealthy movie it sounds but like a john waters film the way you're describing the it. tone is actually very gentle and kind of beautiful uh miranda july is trying to find these weird quirky these weird quirky characters but tell us stories of their lives showing us that they're really kind of delightful, magical, and funny. Mm. And the movie is delightful, magical, and funny. Yeah. It's really engrossing and will just give you pleasant, warm feelings despite how odd it is. Maybe because of how odd it is. Mm. Uh, I love it. I love oh, it. I, have, I've, uh, I need cri- to seek this one out. Criterion put it out, uh, which was very wise of them. I encourage <laughs> you to seek that one out. Uh, okay, well I'm going to move on and mm. I'm going to move on to a film by a filmmaker that I think most people adore. Mm. Uh, he's certainly one of the more celebrated filmmakers of his generation. Uh, but a film that I feel like uh, in his filmography doesn't get talked about a lot. Mm. And that is Robert Altman's Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. This is another one I've projected and not watched. Once again, that title is amazing. Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. I'll say this. Um, I've had We have to construct previews at my job Mm -hmm. i work with a lot of 35 millimeter film that means previews as well yeah and we have to put little strips of tape with the title written out very clearly on it so you can grab it off a shelf or see it from across the room yeah when you're trying to write come back to the five and dime jimmy dean jimmy dean you're just mad at robert alton (laughs) (laughs) you know uh uh one of the things that made me choose and we'll talk about this more when i get to it Mm. my number one is that it's maybe the only film on my list Mm. where you can't shorten the title yeah. Like, you could call it Come Back to the Five and Dime, and you know what movie we're talking about. Everyone knows mm. it's clearly Come Back to the Five and Dime. Yeah, Jimmy and Dean, it can Jimmy be like Dean. Come Back slash yeah. Dean. It's yeah. not going to work. You could just say it's a mad dot 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 world. You could say Django Kill. You could say The Three Burials. You could say Master and Commander. My number one doesn't follow those rules. Mm. Uh, but uh, Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, is a filmed stage play. Uh, it takes place all in one location, and it is at a Woolworths, a... a Five and Dime, there's a counter where you can get beverages, and there's you can buy shoes and comic books, and it takes place in 1975, if memory serves, mm. uh, and uh, it intercuts between uh, a group of women uh, who all hung out at this Five and Dime in 1955, mm. and they're all having a reunion in 1975, and the cast includes Sandy Dennis, Cher... Kathy Bates, and Karen Black, amongst others. The whole idea of this film is that this town was the town where they filmed the James Dean movie Giant. So the young women of this town, when it was being filmed in the 1950s, were very fixated on James Dean. He was the biggest Mm -hmm. star in the world, and there was actually a cattle call for uh, extras to be used in the film, and Sandy Dennis plays a young woman who was actually an extra in the movie Giant, uh, and we quickly learn her son, Jimmy Dean, who is never actually seen on film, but is a presence throughout. Hmm. Maybe James Dean's son. 
She has been living in this weird fantasy world because of this incident ever since. And the very... It's very, very glass menagerie. It is. Yeah. It is, actually. It's very, very much lives of quiet desperation and lies that we have told ourselves and truths being exposed. And the way... The mechanic is actually really, really interesting because instead of cutting to a flashback mm-hmm. of, you know, young Cher, young Sandy Dennis, young Kathy Boy, whatever... Uh, they actually have it on set where the mirror at the back of the like the ice cream counter is a two-way mirror. And when they flick the lights on, it's a replica of the stage, but it's all in like mirror reverse. Mm-hmm. And that's where we see all the flashbacks. Uh, also in those flashbacks, we see uh, a rare appearance by actor Mark Patton. Who, if you don't know the name, was the star of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, (laughs) whose career was basically destroyed Mm. by that film uh, because he was kind of quickly outed in the industry. And there were people who thought that people wouldn't pay to see a gay actor in cinema, and his career was basically destroyed by it. It's, and it's a real tragedy. Mainstream film career. Yeah, it's mainstream film career. And there's a great uh, documentary on uh, Shudder. Shudder right now called Scream, Queen, uh, about his his about Nightmare Two, but mostly about Mark Patton. And he's a really really good actor. He's he's really strong in this, and he plays uh, 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 a boy who is actually uh, you know figuring out his gender identity and um, the way that the story progresses and the truths that are revealed and the way Karen Black comes into the narrative. Karen Black comes into this movie. My wife put this the best possible way. She comes into this movie like a Wild West superstar just shooting up the town, but she does it with <laughs> acting. Like, she's so fucking good in this. Um, it's one of those movies, that's, like we said, some of these aren't all as progressive as we would like, and there are elements of the film and the way it portrays... Uh, uh, sorry, portrays? Treats Portrait. slash portrays. Portrays, yeah. Uh, um, at the risk of spoilers, but uh, you, you'll figure it out. It's pretty quick. Uh, uh, the way it treats sort of the trans experience mm. uh, probably won't reflect current sensibilities regarding that and the way that the characters speak about it. Um, I'm... It was, know, it was I, made I, at a different time. It's made that's, at a different yeah, time, and it was made by, to my best of my knowledge, non-trans people. If I'm wrong, I, I apologize. Uh, but overall, it's actually a very strong presentation. Mm. Over the the acting is fantastic. Sandy Dennis is amazing. Cher is amazing. Karen Black is amazing. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a big long stage play. That's what it is. Mm. Sit down, knowing that you're getting a big long stage play, but it is a very good stage play. Yeah. And uh, it deserves to have a bigger audience, I think. Let's move on. Okay. Um, I'm going to choose one I saw just recently. Oh, um, okay. So, and I, I, it took me a little while to get through this one because it's actually 288 minutes long. Okay. Uh, it's quite a long film. It's, yeah, four, that's about four hours and 48 minutes. Uh, but the title is, As I Was Moving Ahead, Occasionally I Saw Brief Glimpses of Beauty. Okay. Uh, it's... And it's and this is actually something we're going to be talking about on a future podcast, yeah, so let's and, not go into this, too much detail. Not too much detail, but this is something I've been doing for research for a future podcast, but it has a very long, ungainly title, so it fits in, and I also happen to really, really love it. Okay. Uh, it's uh, an experimental documentary done by a Lithuanian filmmaker named Jonas Mikas, and uh, it's nothing but home video footage that he shot over the course of his of his life. And mm. we get to see his kids being born, and we get to see 
meetings with other people, with like family friends and some, a few other famous people that he was friends with. We get, uh, there's no sound for any of this. So a lot of it is just sort of over a big musical montage. There's not a lot of context given for a lot of these things. Maybe there will have like a year, but it's not told in chronological order. Mm. Uh, we get to see the sort of the birth of his son and he is showing these lives and constantly he'll, he'll, you'll hear his voice on the soundtrack sort of questioning why he's doing this, why he is bothering to capture all of these uh, moments of his life and how the camera is essentially trying to distill life down into uh, it's, you know, base nature. What, mm. what is it, this thing here? But he's not doing that in this sort of snooty intellectual way. He's not trying to intellectually deconstruct his own life. He is trying to find what is at the heart of human existence. And what he finds as at the heart of human existence is just happiness. That it's just love. Uh, that that there can be families that just love each other. And that's what he's, that we get to watch for f like four hours and 45 minutes. And it's the, a film I've watched uh, that just sort of moved me to big, ugly, choking sobs. Wow. Like I, I couldn't just sort of sit there and let a tear roll down my cheek quietly in the dark. I just had to, had to stop, lean over and ball and ball wow. because just watching a real human life and coming to the conclusion that you, you struggle. Yes, but sit here, do it the hard way and come out the other side because happiness is what's at stake. It's not what's at stake. It's the goal of your life. And if you did it, then great. Wow. And it's possible. Uh, That's it's, amazing. It's a really, really beautiful experiment. Okay. Well, I actually... Do you need it for four hours and 45 minutes? I did. Okay. Uh, I, I think having it there in front of you and living with it for that long a period really pushes it further. I mean, like, yeah. It really makes it hit home. Uh, well, listen, I actually I need to see this movie for mm. this podcast we're doing in the future, so we'll have a longer conversation about it mm. uh, at a future date. But yeah, uh, I went from being interested to absolutely being excited to mm. see this. So, well, you and you might have a different reaction. I you know, I, 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 have, I do have different takes on movies. I, I have a, a great deal of patience when mm. it comes to films that a lot of people say, "Ah, it's too long." Well, I, perhaps, but if it's find, if it's mm. that pure. I found myself yelling. It's like when I see most movies like this doesn't need to be longer than 90 minutes. You can tell any story you need to in 90 minutes. That's what John Waters has said. Before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of his movies are very strictly only 90. 91 is too long. 90 minutes is all you need. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, we don't need three hours of Avengers Endgame. You can get that done in 90 minutes. But then another part of me says, no, every film needs to be over five hours in length. <laughs> Take as much time as you possibly fucking need to. Well, uh, speaking of which, uh, let's move on to my next pick. Uh, this is a movie that I am reasonably confident is a million hours long. <laughs> is it James, is it James Cameron's Aliens? No, because that what? one just goes on and on. Oh, shush, you're <laughs> silly. No, no, no. And it's a movie whose title I think sets you up mm. to slow the fuck down because you're gonna have to mm. if you're gonna see and fully appreciated movie. I think is genuinely beautiful. The assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. I haven't seen that. That's, you never saw it's, it? It's one one I wanted to oh, see shit. to catch up for this very podcast. I assume you had seen this one. Nope, okay. I have not well, seen I, it. I know, I know westerns aren't usually your thing. Yeah, I, I don't go out of my way to see them, but I've, I, I've seen a lot okay. I enjoy. Okay, so The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford is about the time uh, Robert Ford, who was a coward, uh, mm. assassinated uh, Jesse James. Mm. It takes two hours and 40 minutes to get to that. 
Actually, that's not true. It happens, and then the movie keeps going uh, a long way. It's this isn't it's not a spoiler. It's while we're here. It's uh, uh, written and directed by Andrew Dominic. Brad Pitt plays Jesse James. Brad Pitt can be an amazing actor with the right material, and even with bad material, he's usually very charismatic. He's very very good here. He is in prime elegiac. Brad Pitt stares at the middle distance mode. <laughs> and uh, does that a lot. And uh, Casey lot Affleck movies. plays Robert Ford, who uh, idolizes Jesse James. He was a legend in his own time. Hmm. And when he gets an opportunity to join Jesse James's gang, he does so from the perspective of like a fan person who can't shut that shit off <laughs> and just be like part of the group. He always feels like an outsider, and he's kind of making himself an outsider by always, you know, sort of forcing himself onto the periphery. And as time goes on, he starts to resent Jesse James because he never quite makes the connection with him that he wants. And when the time comes where Jesse James actually has a bounty on his head and he can actually just do something about it, it leads to really amazing... The the actual incident in the title is incredible filmmaking. Just absolutely incredible filmmaking. But the movie itself is staggeringly beautifully photographed. I want to make sure I remember. It was Roger Deakins. Of course it was. Um, Maybe maybe Upper Echelon, maybe one of, if not the best looking Westerns I've ever seen. Okay. Uh, And it's it's slow moving and it understands that life on the frontier wasn't as eventful as a film like Django Kill would Mm. have you believe. There's a lot of peaceful moments. There's a lot of contemplative moments. Mm. There's a lot of moments where it's just you in nature. And it has an almost Terrence Malickian quality. Uh, is it really long? Yes. Is it maybe too long? Maybe. <laughs> I'm not actually going to fight you on this. If you think this movie is like an hour too long, I, you, I think you could probably get this one down a little bit. But even as it stands... It is incredibly gorgeous, beautifully acted, uh, and um, yeah, and it and it totally justifies the unwieldiness of its title, which for All me right. uh, gives it some bonus points. All right, All right uh, moving on. What's mm. your next one? Uh, I want to talk about a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on existence. Oh, you'll take any <laughs> excuse to do so, won't you? Yes, I will because I love this movie. Okay. It's good. It's uh, it's a 2014 <laughs> film from a Swedish director named Roy Anderson. Roy Anderson has a film coming out later this year, which I can't wait to see. Cool. Um, it's uh, in, an absurdist slow piece of slow cinema mm-hmm. uh the camera doesn't really move i think there's like two shots where the camera moves but it's mostly just little seemingly not un, not interconnected vignettes where something weird happens the recurring characters are two joke salesmen like two novelty salesmen they sell like you know monster teeth and hand buzzers and that sort of thing but they r- clearly really hate their jobs mm. And they're really unsuccessful, so they're not even really trying anymore. Here are some vampire teeth. They're funny. You want them? How about a hand buzzer? It's funny. You want it? No. I mean, they just go chuck it back into their case. They go into a diner, try to sell their wares. They kind of give up, and everybody's just silent. And then outside of the window, we see, like, a, a huge military retinue from the 1700s marching by. Like, you. Really, like, hundreds of extras were involved in this shot that's seen through the window of a diner. It's pretty amazing. Um, yes, we, we get to hear a pigeon in a couple scenes. We kind of mm. hear it cooing from off screen. Is it considering uh, its existence? I mean, what does it say? Well, uh... 
there's there a scene where somebody's looking at a Bruegel painting. Uh, oh, good old Bruegel. And, and uh, there's a, a pigeon in the Bruegel painting, and evidently it's a sitting on the branch reflecting upon its existence. Um, it's strange and it's hilarious at the same time. It is the single most wry, dry comedy you'll ever see. Hmm. Uh, just everything is timed perfectly well. And then something really shocking will happen. There's a, a vignette where a monkey is being experimented on and somehow they play it for laughs. Wow. Um, and the, it, it, does it play for laughs? Does it, it actually it's, succeed? No, it's, it's, it's played as a, for comedy. No, but like, that, this, it's played for comedy doesn't yeah. mean it's funny. Is it yeah. actually funny? I, I, I think so. Oh, okay. in, in, in a very, very dark sort of way. Of course. And, and the climax is particularly dark. Uh, I'll, I'll let you watch the film. Uh, it's on Tubi right now. <laughs> oh. Tubi is the weirdest, the absolute weirdest yeah. like streaming Tubi. service. It's free, Tubi and they is, have the yeah. most bizarre and amazing selection. Mm. Uh, Tubi is like the third video store you'd go to, yeah, because they'd have like the weird shit. Yeah. Like there's the the one you went to all the time because they had all the films you knew you liked, yeah. and all the and then you know good selection, maybe yeah. really well curated, good staff that you know was unruly and surly, but they'd help you out and yeah. give you some good keys to the kingdom. This is the one that was they just bought whatever they had left <laughs> everything that was left over and they just put it haphazardly on the shelves. It wasn't well organized. Everything was really, really dusty. Uh, I, I uh, you, you were always suspicious of the other clientele in there because they probably had a knife on them. Yeah, one of my, one of my, one of my great, one of the great tragedies I feel uh, with a lot of streaming services is what I would love to do in a video store is go through their horror section and find the weird barely released stuff mm. but from like the 70s and 80s because I find if you get like the like the straight to video or completely overlooked horror stuff now a lot of it is just really cheap digital stuff and it just doesn't feel like a lot of care has been put into it but you could find some really completely random thing like on VHS mm. from like 1973 <laughs> and you would find this incredible little miracle of a movie and Tubi has all those films Yep, not all of them, but they have a lot of them. And we just randomly the other night we were just like, let's watch something like some horror movie from the seventies we've never heard of. So of course we put on Tubi because they have that shit. And we picked up <laughs> the house that cried murder. <laughs> what the hell is that? It's also and it was also called much more boringly the bride. Uh, and well, I've seen the movie the, the it, bride. No, no, it's not the Jennifer Beale film. Yeah, this is a nineteen seventy three horror movie uh, directed by Jean Marie Pellissy. Uh, and it is about a woman who marries a guy and the guy is obviously just into her for money because she's uh, rich and spoiled. Uh, and on the, her wedding day, he starts making out with like his old girlfriend and she starts stabbing them with scissors. And then she like drives off into nowhere and she vanishes and her husband and his girlfriend just sort of like try to move on with their lives. And like, oh, I guess she was fucking gone. And then she starts stalking them and like doing all this crazy shit. And it's cheap. Mm. It's the acting goes from like bad to actually pretty good. The cinematography is actually surprisingly creepy. There's okay. one nightmare sequence in this movie that is actually feels like a real nightmare. Okay. Like it's actually like cuz it's just one of those like weird finds where like whoever made this was pretty sincere about this. And even though parts of it are cheap, maybe a little inept, um but there's a genuineness to it and we really got into it. Right. So, like, thank you, Tubi, for bringing the house that cried murder into my life, because okay. I never would have seen it otherwise. Well, they also have a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on existence. The perfect double feature. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's a point. Doobie, yeah. Doobie has a weird selection. Doobie bless you for having wonderful, a weird wonderfully weird selection. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just just scour through. Why yeah. not? If you're bored one evening, you'll spend less time browsing on Tubi than you will on any other streaming service. Because you're going to actually find something that looks interesting enough to watch pretty quick. Yeah. Especially yeah. if you like older movies. So there you go. Mm. Um, all right. That's a great pick. I haven't seen that one either. I'm a bad person, but that's fine. Uh, I, number I, three. I, I tried to talk it up to everybody back I know in 2014. And just no, you, no one listens to me because my, my taste is strange. I listen to you, but we have to watch so much stuff that it's um, hard for me to sometimes go back. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I apologize. Well, that's, that was actually on my list of something I was going to try to watch for this. But like yeah. we're recording this on like... The 30th. Yeah, we wanted like, to get it in under the wire. We really wanted to get this one in before the end of the month because, you know, we're supposed mm. to do this thing every month. Um, but uh, in any case, the next film on my list is a film that when this was put on the Patreon poll, uh-huh. this this option, people were just like, Babs is just going to put Birds of Prey on there. And I did. No, you and your Birds of Prey. And I'm going to make it short because I've talked about this a lot lately and Mm. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail because I've done it a lot. We talked about it on the podcast. I brought it up a few other times. Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn came out earlier this year. Uh, it, another title they had to shorten. Yeah, they ended after, up calling after it. The fact. They ended up changing the title to, in theaters. They called it to Harley Quinn colon Birds of Prey, which is a boring ass title. I love the title Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn because I think it actually reflects the film. This is trying to be a Birds of Prey movie about how these this female superhero team hmm. uh, got together. And instead, <laughs> Harley Quinn hijacks the whole fucking movie. <laughs> and she's amazing in it. If you saw Margot Robbie in Suicide Squad, you know that she's a total scene stealer and that she really gets this character. Hmm. Um, this is a movie that is really vibrant and alive and energetic in a way that I think even some of the best superhero movies never get to anymore. You, you see like the cinematography and the editing in something like Spider-Man two, and you realize just how exciting some people find it to make a superhero movie. And then you see something like, I don't know, Thor, which I like Thor. Thor, I'm one of the I'm one of the defenders of the original Thor. But aside from a couple of weird bits, it's mostly really restrained and kind of kind of uh, uh, they're just trying to like hit this mainstream quadrant. Whereas something like Birds of Prey is actually going for the hey, do you like Paul Verhoeven movies? Cool. This is the superhero movie for you. We have people who are acting in completely antisocial ways. You're going to love them anyway. There's actually a lot of subversive stuff in here about misogyny, about uh, the way that Gotham City is run and why it is so fucked up the way that it is fucked up. You got a bunch of really wonderful characters and the action sequences are fucking Mm. awesome. So I'm not going to go into more detail because I've talked about it again. And at this rate, odds are exceptionally good. It'll end up on my best films of the year list. Maybe I'll go into more detail then. I love this movie. If you miss this movie in theaters, please go check this out. I think you'll have a really cool time. There you go. That's it. All right. All right. Cool. And you didn't like it as much, and that's fair. Let's move on. I, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm in the minority. I know yeah. a lot of people did like this movie. And I, I, a lot of people, the people who saw this movie mostly liked this movie. Hmm. The people who hated this movie, as near as I can tell, a lot of them didn't see it. They just sort of objected to it out of hand, and that's hmm. annoying. So, no, uh, but yeah, most of the people I know who I, actually I, saw the movie were like, "Damn, that's fucking amazing," no. and and you just weren't super into it. No, I, I was fine. I, all of all of the 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 craziness and chaos that I hear people talk about is not something I saw. 
I feel like it was really weirdly like subdued and safe. You you promised me that mm. you would see this again before the end of the year. I, I'm going to try because okay. I feel I know like you're busy, but like I, I feel I, this I feel is like you should give the, this one a second. One, shot. one of the rare cases where I feel like I truly did miss something. Like mm. I need to give it another if shot. You, if you don't see it the second mm. time, fair enough. But mm. for me, do me a favor, check it out one more time. Uh, yeah, maybe. Okay. maybe I'll stay up late tonight. All right. What's your What's your number two? Uh, I, I'm torn between what I want my what I wanted my number one and my number two to be. Okay. Um, I'm going to save my favorite for my number one and the classic for my number two. Okay. Uh, the classic is Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. That's also my number two. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So this is this <laughs> I, I did the same thing. I yeah. put my favorite at number one and mm-hmm. I put the... Because let's mm-hmm. be honest here. If we're looking at... And there's no objectivity in film criticism. That's mm-hmm. a lie. But if we're trying to look at not just quality, but like historical significance mm-hmm. and uh, overall craft, this is probably... You know, it's, it's between this and Master and Commander like is like the, the two yeah. best movies on any list. Yeah, I suppose yeah. so. Um, yeah. But yeah, Doctor Strangelove... Again, I, I assume this is one a lot of people have seen. This is one a lot of uh, you, you go to college, you watch Doctor Strange Love. It's a kind of kind of a rite of passage. In oh, a lot and, of ways. In, and in case you you don't know it, the full title is Doctor Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Hmm. But people just usually shorten it to Doctor Strange. Just Doctor Strange Love. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that whole title appears on screen. Yeah. Um, Doctor Strange Love, uh, Stanley Kubrick's film from the 1960s. It's about the arms race that was going on at the time, and always seems very politically salient, no matter what era in which you watch it. Mm. It was really big in the 80s when we were all afraid of dying in a nuclear blast. That was a big, big part of culture at the time. Listen to all kinds of pop music and pop entertainment. It's all about who has the bomb. Uh, yeah, this was uh, about how Russia and America were heightening tensions, and the plot is about a, a army base commander who goes a little funny in the head and uh-huh. uh, because he's impotent because he's impotent yeah he loses his mind because, because he's worried about because his masculinity because he's impotent and uh, he gives the kill order to drop the bomb on Russia yeah he, no one has given him this order he's only supposed to he do just, it if the president says so but the whole point is he just decided to do it the whole point is it's... you could just do that and it takes place in three locations. There's a Peter Sellers in each one. Well, yeah. there's supposed to be a Peter Sellers in each one. Uh, yeah, but, he ended up uh, backing out because he didn't think he could do like four different but characters. In, yeah, and in, in, uh, there's the war room where the president and all the generals are meeting and they're like powerless to stop what's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, George, uh, George C. Scott is wonderful. Amazing. Uh, so damn funny. Buck Turgidson, who's like the, the one who's given, like trying to lay it out straight. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's on the actual bomber itself and how they're getting the orders and what they're doing to prepare for it and how they're really trying to sort of wrestle with the idea. No, this is really going on. Uh, the Slim Pickens role was supposed to be played by Peter Sellers, but he backed out. Mm-hmm. And the third location... Which is not was, to say that he, like, copped out of the movie. He's still playing, like, four amazing characters in this film. He claimed to be ill just because he didn't want to work that hard. It's um, like, I gotta, do, I gotta do that many accents yeah. in one film? No. Yeah. And, uh, and the third location is the army base where uh, Sterling Hayden, who is the, the general who's given the kill order, is having a... A conversation with a, a visiting British soldier and kind of laying out why he's doing all of this. And how the British soldier is also powerless to stop everything. Uh, a lot of the um, character names in Doctor Strange Love are uh, crude sex jokes because what the movie is arguing is that this, war, and in particular the Cold War, is basically a bunch of men insecure about the size of their penises. Yeah, yeah. that's basically the whole presence of the movie. So, the, t- so the names include. Uh, uh, let's see, we got. Um, uh, Doctor Strangelove is obviously a joke. Mm. Uh, Doctor, uh, sorry, Captain Lionel Mandrake. That's the British soldier. Yeah. Uh, President Merkin Muffley. A Merkin is the name for a pubic wig, mm-hmm. which is a thing. They often use them in movies to hide 
Uh, and uh, even Buck Turgidson. Turgid is like swollen and engorged. That's what turgid means. Turgidson. Yeah. So like, there's it's it's not a subtle film, no, is it? No, but no, it's no. a very well thought out film. What is what's that bit George Carlin says? You know the the. Why is it the bombs and the rockets and the bullets are all shaped like dicks? <laughs> it's the need to project that into other people's affairs. It's called fucking with people. I never knew this. I never, or, or if I knew it, I never like remembered it. Mm. Uh, James Earl Jones is in this movie. It's one of his earliest film performances. He's, he's on the bomber. He's one of yeah. the soldiers on the bomber. And he, he's great. But he's just not in it very much. Uh, and I never picked up on his character name. His character name is Lieutenant Lothar Zog. Oh, is it? I don't that's think, weird. I don't think I picked that up. Lothar. That's, I never picked. I don't think they. I don't remember if they ever say it on screen. But like, that's amazing. Um, but yeah, yeah. So the whole thing is like because we decided to wrap politics and war and weapons of mass destruction and give the keys to all of those things to people who aren't necessarily qualified to handle any of that mm. shit. They're just the people who want to. We may have. Doomed us all. Yep. <laughs> all of these yep. fears that we have about the Cold War is basically: uh, Does the president feel insecure today? Well, hmm. we might have a problem. <laughs> and um, that's a pretty vicious sentiment to present in a major studio release, not subtly in any way, uh-huh. in the early 1960s. And it's so. It's so fucking hard. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's also it's really fucking funny. With you, yeah. It's also really fucking funny. Well, it's really accessible too. I feel like yeah. you could show this to high school kids and they'd get it. Yeah, there's there's like stuff they might not pick up on that was like specific to the era or maybe specific wordplay jokes that they're gonna miss. But the overall gist of the film, I saw this movie when I was in like the fifth grade. Mm. I picked up on most of it. I rewatched it again several times since, and every time I appreciate it more. Yeah. Um. But uh, yeah, it's a fantastic movie, and this is. It's weird because I feel like thanks in part to like. I feel like the reputation of Stanley Kubrick is that he was a cold filmmaker. Mm. And I don't think he was. Well, he, he wasn't until after 2001. I still don't think he was. I think mm. the thing with uh, Stanley Kubrick is that Stanley Kubrick liked to tell his stories visually mm. as objectively as possible. He would f- lock down shots, find perfect frames, and there's a certain sterility in some respects to uh, the way that he presents his narrative. Mm. The characters within his narrative, on the other hand, are fully formed emotional beings. Mm. Eyes Wide Shut is all about emotional insecurity. It's an incredibly emotional movie, even mm. though it's considered to be, you know, kind of cold because, you know, the orgy scene isn't sexy. It's not supposed to be sexy. It's supposed to be a dream. He's it's supposed a dream to be, orgy. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. That's the point of that scene. Um, you know, Full Metal Jacket is full of passion, but the camera angles are often, you know, almost mathematical. Mm. So. I think that's the kind of the fascinating thing about him. And when you see something like Dr. Strangelove, you realize, oh, shit. He, he's considered like this like cold and sterile filmmaker. He was funny. Kubrick was funny. Mm. He was observant. And he was incredibly funny. And this movie holds up real, real well. And if you've never seen it, please do. It's incredible. It's one of the best ever. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I think if, if we were going just by like base quality... This would probably be number one on one or both of our lists, but yeah. it stands as number two for I think the exact same reason. We wanted to put something else put, on put, here. Our, put our favorites at number one. Well, you want to go first or should I? I'll go first. You All just right. you just you're the one who threw out Doctor Strange right. love. Uh, so as I said, I was going in, in ascending order of longest titles. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the one that is my number one is The Exception, uh, which is like the third longest title according to the Microsoft Word document <laughs> that <laughs> okay, I just typed yeah. it all out. I just picked them on length. Um, but it's it's a wonderful film. It's not the best film on the list, but it's a wonderful film. And more than I think any other film on this list, mm-hmm. completely, not only is it does it completely justify its long title, its unwieldy title, mm-hmm. It's also the only film on my list that is about why the title is so unwieldy. Okay. It's The Englishman Who Went Up a Hill But Came Down a Mountain. That's your number one, really? It actually yeah, is, and right. I revisited it, and I'm glad okay. I did. And again, and again, I would argue Doctor Strange Love is a better film. Okay. I would argue The Assassination of Jesse James with the Kyrie Robert Ford is a better film. I would argue Master and Commander and It's a Mad, 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 Mad World are better films. Maybe even a couple of others. But for movies with really long titles the englishman who went up a hill but came down a mountain always sticks out for me in part because you kind of can't shorten this to an to a wieldy length they, like they the englishman no that's nothing that doesn't tell you uh, anything i uh, the englishman who went up a hill still kind of long i worked in the theater where this played yeah and they had to shorten it to the englishman because the full title didn't fit on a marquee or, or in any of the computer systems and i get that but that doesn't tell you the movie that doesn't even like you couldn't even tell what movie that is is something about an englishman the fuck is that the English, there, I, there are more vague titles there though. are more vague titles but my point is is that you can't shorten this one down and also the movie is literally about why someone is called the englishman who went up a hill and came down a mountain mm. uh the the movie uh it takes place in world war one um and a small town in wales uh where almost all of the young men have gone off to war uh, the the youngest man in town is played by cole maney uh, who you might remember from Star Trek Deep Space Nine or The Van or, or The Commitments or uh, wonderful actor, really wonderful lot, actor. A lot, lot of Irish movies. Yeah. And who and who wanders into town but Ian McNeese, really wonderful character actor, and Hugh Grant, who spent the entirety of the 1990s being befuddled. <laughs> he played one role in all of his movies. Yep. It was Hugh Grant. He was a, he was a he was very, very, very very befuddled but no one did befuddled like Hugh Grant mm. like I'm, I'm dead serious we, it was easy to like kind of make fun of because it was so distinct but like you watch this movie or you watch Four Weddings and a Funeral or you watch Sense and Sensibility he's perfect mm. he's really really good um, and uh, they've come to town because they are cartographers they are surveying the area they're redoing all of the maps uh, in England because for the war effort we need to make sure we know what we have <laughs> Uh, wh- where we stand, where the geography of the country is in case it becomes important later. So they are here to measure the mountain, which is considered the first mountain in Wales. Exactly what that means, who the fuck knows? That's a really <laughs> weird thing to say. But, but it, it's the, the pride the local, of the town. The locals take a lot of pride in the fact that they live by a mountain, yeah. but it might not be tall enough. They, I think they have like a new measuring technique that the, would make sure that's true. They have more specific measuring techniques in order to measure a mountain uh, than they ever have before. And they actually specifically say like mountains are measured differently in different countries, but in England, it's anything over a thousand feet tall. That's a mountain. Hmm. And they measure the mountain, and it turns out it's, uh, if I might be getting the number wrong, but I think it's, uh, 983 feet oh, <laughs> And they're like Oh fuck you And so what they decide to do is They decide this is the pride of our town All of our young men are out You know being killed overseas And we are not going to let them come back to our town And find out that we have been diminished In their absence 
demoted to a hill. Yeah, this is not our town. Our town is a mountain town, <laughs> and we are going to make the mountain bigger. And we're not going to half-ass this by just taking some dirt from the top of the mountain and putting it at the top. That's bullshit. We are going to take it from the bottom of the mountain, and we're going to pile it 20 feet high on top of the mountain, and we're going to do this while constantly distracting Hugh Grant and Ian McNeese who are trying to leave town because their job is done. And in a way, it kind of plays off like a quirky, like a quirkier version of Local Hero, mm. which if you've ever seen Local Hero is amazing. Uh, but this is just a really... Wonderfully charming, absolutely sweet film. The cinematography is really, really gorgeous. The the mm, Welsh right. countryside is incredible. Um, and I was surprised. I really wanted to make sure I saw this because this is actually my one of my favorite movie titles of all time. Okay. And whenever anyone does like a challenge, like a like a Twitter challenge, like add goat to a movie title, mm. this is the first title I use every single time. My first thought is, how can I make this about the Englishman who went up a hill but came down a mountain? Because the whole point is at the end of the movie, Hugh Grant goes up the hill and they, they're building it up again and by the time he comes back down, it's a mountain. But also... It literally it's about, happens in the film. But that's also a metaphor for character development, isn't it? And isn't that nice? Um, it's delightful. It is about why it has a long title... The long title is completely justified. The long title is also like a play on words, which is actually pretty clever. And on top of being a play on words, it's also a good metaphor. All the acting in this movie is good. The soundtrack is wonderful. Mm. This movie is great, and nobody talks <laughs> about it anymore. It was, and it's it was, a shame. It's a good if you if you've heard about it, you probably heard about it because it's the title. It's also really good. So please see the Englishman who went up hill. It'll charm the pants off you. Just, you'll have a sweet time. That, that's, it's a hell of a uh, lot better than Waking Ned Divine. I will take that, okay. I will take that Pepsi that was, challenge any was, fucking day of the week. I was actually going to bring up that there was this huge wave uh, on the indie film circuit in the mm. mid-90s yeah. uh, of uh, small or working class towns, usually in England or Australia, mm. uh, about sort of quirky characters who accomplished something in an unusual sort of way. Yeah, uh, uh, the Full so Monty is probably Mon the Full Monty best is, known yeah, example. Was, was nominated for Best Picture, but there's even things like Saving Grace, where Brenda mm -hmm. Brethren sells weed, or Calendar Girls, that's part of that same wave. Where Green Helen, Fingers, where a bunch mm. of British prisoners start a garden. Yeah, Cosi, uh, mm. they, they put on an opera. There's mm -hmm. a whole, whole... The Dish. Oh, Have yeah, you ever seen the, dish? the dish? The dish is, a, is delightful. Little uh, welcome to Whoop Whoop, which is just yeah. they go to a small Australian town, and it's really mm. weird. The Castle. Mm. These are all wonderful mm. films. To a T. Every single so, one of them. Is some a, better than others. Oh, sure, but, yeah. Some better than others, but like these, mm. this is a charming little like film festival yeah, you could do. It was this weird trend that was going right. on in the mid nineteen nineties, and, and I, I feel miss like trends uh, like that. What can, can we bring that trend back instead <laughs> of just like. You know, mm. more superheroes. Like, can we bring like twee little British and Australian and New Zealand well, I've, like I've, countryside comedies back? I've noticed there's a, a little trend of like uh, miserable dying in the mud horror movies going on. Stuff like The Witch and Hagazusa and uh, yeah. You know, but I'm, I'm thinking and, fair enough. and things things horror, like that. Horror always goes in trends mm. though. When it comes to like comedies, we were on like for the longest time. We were on the gross out trend boring they all, from from dumb and dumber for about six years oh i think even longer yeah. than that but like frankly i got bored with it real real fast there were a few good ones but then we had uh the spoof genre which glad that's like fizzled. there's like, like that, that is one, to there's say, like two good movies the, in that entire way that is to say the bad spoof wave yeah like from, like, to, from like 2000 to 2008 i, I think scary movie awful, kicked yeah. it off and they just they just got real lazy like mm. scary movies kind of funny 
Not Another Teen Movie is actually quite funny, and Date Movie is surprisingly not bad. Okay. Like, it's not. It's, we saw this. It's not particularly good, but it's also kind of funny, and they actually have some affection for what they're doing. But like that was awful. Hmm. But like, yeah, I don't know. I, and then we had like the man child cycle, like the, the Judd Apatow yeah. type stuff, which was also really really hit and miss. But yeah, I don't know. I miss like the cozy small town comedy wave of the '90s. There were some really wonderful films <laughs> that came out, and yeah. one of the best, I maintain. Right. And one of the most overlooked, even though the title is relatively famous, is The Englishman Who Went Up a Hill But Came Down a Mountain. Check it out if you haven't seen it. I think you'll have a really good time. All right. So I like it. It's not the best movie on the list, but I think it's the movie that justifies its title the best. And also, perhaps needs the biggest boost. True. Because not a lot of people have seen that Very, one. very true. Uh, mine might not need a boost. I think it has a bit of a, a following, hmm. but uh, this is one I watched in high school. Hmm. Fell in love immediately. Every time I watch it, I have a wonderful, delightful time. It's another one that's loaded with a lot of those famous 60s comedians, and hmm. it's a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. This is on my honorable based, based on a Stephen Sondheim musical. Golly, I love this movie. Uh, Zero, yeah. so, Zero Mostel plays Pseudolus, a slave in Roman, ancient Roman times, who, uh, but he's known for being very clever and very tricky and is trying to save up enough money to buy his own freedom. That's his arc. Mm. Um, into, uh, into his life, he's the slave to of the son of a, a local magnet who's very, very rich. Mm-hmm. And the son has fallen in love with a neighboring woman who is uh, also a slave. She's a sex worker. Mm. And he plots to get them together, and if he can, then he'll be set free. Yeah. Of course, in order to do this, he has to finagle her out of uh, out of the hands of Marcus Lycus, the local procurer, uh-huh. who's a, a broad comic stereotype, who's played by Phil Silvers in the movie. He's wonderful. Always and, funny. And so he has to sort of spirit, off, uh, spirit the parents off and come up with, like, love potions. and uh, It quickly just, becomes you know, one of these just really fast-paced just sort of, comedies so, yeah, of ma- errors. All, yeah. all, these, yeah, all these, like, little incidents begin mounting and mounting and mounting. He has to find, yeah, the love potion subplot, and then there's this old man who's traveling, and then the uh, Miles Gloriosus, the general who's going to buy this, the slave girl, has to come back, and all, all these characters start, like, switching identities, and people are related to each other who you don't think are related to each other. It's... This wonderful broad farce, and it's all encapsulated by the title, uh, the opening song, which is "Comedy Tonight." Yeah. And they say um, some, something familiar, something peculiar. Tragedy's tomorrow. It's just comedy. There's nothing serious about any of this. Yeah, it's gonna what be is pure farce from beginning. They, to end, they even say it's... at the end, "What is the moral?" Morals tomorrow, <laughs> just comedy. Comedy tonight, and and they're they're so proud of that fact, and they yeah. sell it so brazenly and so cheerfully that it's kind of hard not to be infected by how wonderful this film is. It was made in the sixties. It's brazenly sexist. Oh yeah, uh, oh, yeah. Um, and again, again it's, yeah. it's of its time. It's regressive mm. in a lot of ways. But mm. as a but it, it as a running around, do, mm. slamming doors, mistaken identities, yeah, it's, it's comedy. Not, it's it's a it's, fuck, it kills. Yeah. It's it's sexist, but there's nothing hateful about this movie yeah and again if that if that is a total turn off deal breaker for you i totally get it that's totally fair criticism but i do think it's possible to enjoy this film yeah i uh uh, but uh, zero mostel is really wonderful in it it's actually weird because um it's based on a musical but they cut out most of the musical numbers they cut out some of them there's there's still quite a few but like Mm. apparently they cut out like quite a lot if you're a big fan of the broadway version so Mm. the movie's kind of weird apparently um, I've, I've heard the Broadway soundtrack. It's very, very good. I, I haven't heard the original Broadway soundtrack with Zero Mostel. I'm actually not but, sure if that's... I don't think but it's... But they revived it in the 90s with Nathan Lane as the role, in the role of Pseudolus. Because so they're I've, I've kind of legally songs. required to cast Nathan Lane in a Broadway musical. 
Eventually. Yeah, yeah so. like he will eventually have played everybody. I mean, th- thanks to the producers, he is set for life eight oh, times over. And but, yeah. As well he fucking should be. Yeah, Nathan Lane is a brilliant comedian. Un- unbelievably funny. Yeah, uh, Nathan Lane's very, fantastic. very talented. Oh my God. Just the, a talent of our time, Nathan Absolute, Lane. absolute, mm-hmm. just fucking comedy hero, mm-hmm. Nathan Lane. And, and and he's not above doing like slummy film projects. Oh, like he'll do a bunch of weird and, stuff. and I'll do Mouse Hunt. Yeah. Okay, you're in Mouse. He's Hunt. really fun in Mirror Mirror. He is really fun. Mirror Mirror is <laughs> with the 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 other Snow White movie, uh, starring Karen. Julia Roberts and Lily Collins. Uh, that movie is adorable. A thousand please, times better than please the Snow see White that and movie. The if you ever just want to yeah. see like a weird family film that's like kind of quirky. So good, yeah. and the costume design's amazing. Mm. Uh, but anyway, those are uh, those are our films. Those are our picks. Uh, we know that there are other films with really really long titles. Some of whom uh, did you have Randy Runners up? Uh, no, <laughs> I'll, I'm it, was, it was hard enough to come up. To come, I guess uh, again, I, the, I did like Birdman. Yeah, um, didn't make my runners up, but it's a good yeah. movie. Um, here's here's what made my runners up. I'll just I'll list them off real real fast. I am a fugitive from a chain gang. Mm. Absolutely uh, uh, devastating uh, message picture from the 1930s. Uh, Don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. Wonderful title. The movie is very very fun, and I quote it a lot, but it's not top ten list quality. <laughs> no, it's uh, not. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I honestly don't know why it's not on the list. It just I thought other movies needed a boost. You know what? I, I, I think I figured out why I don't like that one as much as a lot of pe- other people do. Uh-huh. I, I, I do like the movie. It's I good. Think it, I think it's yeah. very creative, but I think uh, it was written by Charlie Kaufman, but it was directed by Michel Gondry. Yeah. And I think Michel Gondry is a very quirky, lighthearted, very optimistic filmmaker. And uh-huh. I think the screenplay is actually a very pessimistic screenplay. It's extremely pessimistic. And, uh, and I think what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing are a little bit at odds. Like, there's it, it, like there's, yeah, yeah, there's like this tonal thing that's going on in that I, movie. That I think I kind of agree with you. Didn't have it sit quite as well with me as it did with a lot of people. I, I, I agree with you. I, I, it doesn't really hinder the movie as much, but yeah, for whatever reason, this actually isn't a movie, even though I respect the shit out of it. Mm. I don't really revisit this one a lot. Yeah. Like, I, don't, I, mean, I know I, a lot of people yeah. call it like, it's a perfect romance. Really? What, which no, movie, it's, which movie were it's you a, watching? It's a tragedy is what yeah. it is. But anyway, uh, let's see. Mm. Uh, the strange color of your body's tears is actually a more <laughs> wanted to catch up with it. It's so fucking good and the only reason it's not on my top 10 list is because I haven't rewatched it recently and the plot is so phantasmagorical that I wasn't I was afraid I wouldn't be able to discuss it clearly Mm. but uh, it is a horror movie a hallucinogenic surrealist horror giallo uh, about uh, missing persons and possibly murders and possibly other nightmare scenarios that are too bizarre to fully categorize mm-hmm. that are all happening in one apartment complex mm-hmm. um, and they all come together and it is from the directors of Amer and Let the Corpses Tan who are some of the most incredible visual filmmakers we have working today anywhere in the world mm. and it is absolutely phenomenal I think people should see it it's dark and really really violent so Make sure you're ready for it, but it's really good. Uh, let's see. The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Uh, I don't, For some reason, the title doesn't feel long to me. I don't know why. It's, I love that movie. I think it's basically a fantastic film. Uh, same thing with Tu Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. It's very, very cute. Um, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It's just it's a light comedy. And it's really good. Uh, let's see. Uh, funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl. And finally, a, a title I love... And a movie I barely like. Uh, but uh, I think arguably the best title ever for a giallo. 
uh, is your vice is a locked door and only I have the key. Once again, your vice is a locked door and only I have the key. What an incredible title for a not very good giallo. It's just kind of grody and twisted, but not in a very focused way. The ending's pretty good, but I've seen other Jali do it better. Like, um, ah, uh, it's like Seven Chimes and what? what wow, what's the what's the other title of the one that's called the Psychic? Oh, the Fulci film. Yeah. Oh, I don't remember. Hold on, I just know it as the Psychic. There's there's a better title for it that makes mm. uh, a lot more sense. Uh, uh, Seven Notes in Black. Okay. Seven Notes in Black does like kind of has the same ending, but I yeah, think it yeah. does it a million times better. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's just not a good jello, but the title is fucking amazing. So I had to give at least a shout out because what a title! Your vice is a locked door, and only I have the key. Is that <gasps> a locked door or a locked room? Did I say door? Yeah, I think it's a locked room. I think you're right. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, I screwed up. But in any case, it is it is a great title. That's it's a no, it's door. Oh, it's door. Okay. Oh, hold on. I, hold I got on. it wrong. I apologize. Your vice is a locked. No, I wrote it down wrong. Oh, okay. You yeah. were right. I wrote it down That's wrong. I, I was going oh, yeah. off my notes. Your vice is a locked room, mm. and only I have the key. Someone has been yelling at this podcast <laughs> for several minutes now, I saying, you're getting it wrong. You're ruining it. All, all our Giallo fans are, are berating you right I, now. I'm terribly, terribly sorry. I wrote it down in my notes wrong. I must not have been paying attention. Your vice is a locked room, and only I have the key. Even so, door, room, doesn't matter. Amazing title. Mm. Not a good movie. Uh, and that is The Iron List. Thanks for listening. Thank you very, very much. And of course, uh, and of course thank you to all of our patrons uh, who sp- sponsor the show, keep the show going, uh, and who get to pick uh, an Iron List every single month. Uh, next month, uh, we're going to have a, a pretty cool set of, of uh, topics that we've come up with you. Uh, we can reveal them now. I'm going to post them as soon as we post this podcast. Um, the Iron List poll will include the following four uh, topics. The best movies that begin with the letter B. We did A a few months ago. We could do B if you want. The best William Shakespeare adaptations. The best Alfred Hitchcock movies. And the best movies about Los Angeles. Yeah, we did a goofy one. We're not going to go full goofy next time. But, (laughs) you know, we'll try it out. So uh, whichever one gets the most votes, that's what we will do on the Iron List in September. And, of course, we have all this other stuff. We have exclusive podcasts over at the Critically Acclaimed Network Patreon. We've got... Podcast about Star Trek. We got a brand new podcast we're doing about the 1960s Batman. We're doing a podcast about every film ever nominated for Best Picture. We're doing commentary tracks. We're actually uh, we're gonna have a poll for our uh, uh, top tier uh, patrons who get the commentary tracks. Uh, we're gonna uh, invite you to pick any Star Wars movie, <laughs> and I mean any Star Wars movie. We'll do the animated Clone Wars. We'll do the Ewoks movie. We'll do the other Ewoks movie. We'll do one of the popular ones people actually like. We'll do the we've what done the, the holiday special before. Fuck it, we'll do it again. What are the popular movies nobody likes? All of them are going to be on the poll, and we'll do whichever one gets the most votes. Yeah. Period. We'll be doing that uh, uh, as well. Um, so uh, a whole lot coming your way. So uh, thank you everybody for listening. You can sign up Patreon.com/slash/CriticallyAcclaimedNetwork. You can email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, we might read your email on the air in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Uh, we can also be found on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And that was the list. Yay! <laughs> <laughs>